Welcome, everybody. Once again, you are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Tuesday, December the 21st of 2010. I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for downloading this message today. We've just got a real quick, brief introduction for you guys today, because uh, for those of you who have been following our podcasts, you know that this past weekend, I, uh, I went up to Linwood, Washington, to preach at Linwood Evangelical Free Church. And uh, I preached on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll get started with that here in just a minute. But uh, yeah, it went great up there. I felt like this was uh, you know, a, a pretty good message, and I felt like I connected with the people up there. Uh, my godmother was there. I haven't seen her in 25 years. She showed up for the service. Uh, just came up and said hi to me right before we got started. Uh, my college roommate, who was also my best man in my wedding, was also there. Uh, as far as I know, he hasn't been to a church service in maybe 15, 20 years. Uh, he and his wife, we had breakfast with him and his wife on Saturday, and they said, you know, the only service of any type that they've gone to since they've been married, which I think they've been married about six or seven years, the only service they've gone to was a Catholic funeral. So, uh, yeah, not a lot of um, exposure to the word there, but he did say that he really enjoyed the message and that if we end up moving up there, uh, that they will be back to the church, that they'll come back and, and listen. So that was really, really cool to me. That really touched me. So anyway, what we're doing this week, uh, instead of Romans, we're going to have, I'm going to share the lesson that I preached up there with you guys. We'll have part one today. We'll have part two on Thursday. It's about 40 minutes, 45 minutes long. So uh, we're cutting this into two segments. So anyway, enjoy, and we'll get back to Romans next week uh, on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. God bless you guys. Keep growing closer to Jesus. And thank you guys all for being here today, especially for those of you who uh, haven't been here before, and this is your first time visiting. Uh, some of you uh, know me through Facebook. Some of you, uh, my college roommate and my best man from my wedding is here. Uh, some of you may have just stumbled in today, and this is your first time, so we want to welcome you. Let's start uh, with a quick word of prayer. Father God, we just commit ourselves to you today, and we commit this time to you, that you would teach us to be more like you in every way. Amen. Well, as Craig had said, we're going to be covering 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 today. But before we get started on that, I thought we'd start with just a quick question. Let me ask you guys, how many of you guys uh, are, are parents? Any parents in here? Almost everybody, right? Or, or a teacher, maybe you've, you're a teacher. Or maybe you've just taught somebody how to do something before. Any, Everybody, right? We've all done that to some degree, and, and parents are both. Parents are our teachers and, uh, you know, parents. Well, I, I would say that there is a certain degree, a very high degree of joy, especially when it's a, a child, when we're a parent. But for any teacher, when you've got a student who gets it, there's a joy that you feel. And those of you who are parents and you've taught your child how to do anything at all, you probably know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to brag on my son a little bit here. A couple weeks ago, uh, Black Friday, you guys remember what Black Friday is. That's the day that everybody goes out at midnight and they wait out in the cold for the stores to open and, uh, and to get the, the, the big deals, right? That's where they're going to get you know, 50% off of something. And so they go out into the cold and they brave the cold. Well, anyway, our church in Arkansas, we decided to do an outreach during that time. And so what we did is we went out at 2 o'clock in the morning with 240 donuts. 
And we went to Best Buy, uh, Sears, Kohl's, Target. We went to a bunch of places. And my son wanted to come with us. And I was, I was the one handing out the donuts. My son was handing out flyers to people. Everybody who got a donut also got a flyer, inviting them to come to a Bible study with us. And so uh, my son is right behind me. He's giving out these flyers. And some guy asks him, some man standing in line asks him, what's this all about? And my son turns to him and he says, Jesus loves you. And the guy kind of pauses and he goes, what? And my son goes, Jesus loves you. And he's 13 years old. Uh, it's, it's not cool to say that to somebody. But my son said, Jesus loves you to this guy. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of get emotional just thinking about it because that was a moment where my son made it really evident that he gets it. He understood what the outreach was all about. He understood what we were doing. And he was proud of it. He got it. See, when a group of persons or a person gets it, it's usually because they've, they're modeling somebody else. They've learned from somebody else. If I get how to, how to play guitar, it's because somebody's taught me. Uh, when we learn to talk, it's because we're modeling, we're copying our parents' model. That's where we learn to get it from. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't have kids that we know about. Uh, We don't even know that he was married or anything. But he was a teacher. And he did experience the pride of teaching somebody something when they get it. Now, we see the same frustration in his letters to the Galatians. He was really frustrated. He was mad when he wrote to the Galatians, and you can pick that up right away in the book of Galatians. He was also a little bit frustrated with the church in Corinth when he wrote to them. See, these were a couple churches that had a lot of issues going on, and some bad theology, and there was a danger of the gospel being compromised. But that wasn't the case with the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were a church that got it, They were a totally different story from these churches that were frustrating Paul. And so what we're going to see in this first chapter is that Paul is just raining down praises on these guys. He's telling them, you're getting it. You're you're right on track. You're doing what you should be doing. Now, before we get into the text, just a little bit of background on the church at Thessalonica. We don't really know a whole lot about the church. We wouldn't know a whole lot at all if it wasn't for Luke. Uh, He wrote the book of Luke. And he also wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, he tells us about uh, Paul on his second missionary journey, stopping through the city of Thessalonica. And Thessalonica was a a huge city for the time. It was about 200,000 people. It was mostly Romans and Greeks, but there were also some Asians there. And apparently there uh, there was also a significant population of Jews there. So his tradition, what Paul would do when he'd go into a city, the first place he would go is to the synagogue. And because his background was in Judaism, and he knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, the first place he'd go is the synagogue, and he'd reason with the Jews, trying to convince them that Jesus is the guy that this is all talking about. All these things that this is saying about this guy that's coming, yeah, this is who Jesus is. And so these things have been fulfilled. So... We don't exactly know how long he spent in Thessalonica. A lot of critics, scholars, commentators would say, well, he could have been there as long as three months. Some would say three weeks, but it does say that he spent three weeks 
reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue. So we know that he spent a minimum of three weeks there, probably a maximum of three months. But that's one of those things that's just kind of up for discussion. Uh, maybe not that important for us to know. But we do know that he converted some Gentiles. And maybe they would have been hanging out in the synagogue. Maybe they wouldn't have been. Maybe he spent three weeks in the synagogue and then some time outside the synagogue. Either way, some Gentiles and some Jews were converted. One of these guys was Jason. And Jason uh, was very close with Paul and Silas. Now, there were some Jews. There were a great number of Jews who did not appreciate what Paul was doing in Thessalonica. So what did they do? Well, Luke tells us that they went down to the marketplace and they basically hired a bunch of thugs to start a riot. And they said, take Paul and take Silas down. Bring them to us. So they go to Jason's house. They're not there. They can't find Paul or Silas. So what they do instead, they take Jason and some people who he was affiliated with or who he was associated with, and they bring them before the council because these were people who were proclaiming Jesus is king, and so the charge was treason because that would have been viewed as a threat to Caesar. Here these guys are talking about you know, what this king Jesus is going to do. Well, you know that's a matter of national defense for the city of Thessalonica. So they get dragged before the council. They, they're found guilty. They spend some time in jail. They're being persecuted. And uh, Luke tells us that there was great turmoil when they heard this report. So Jason and the other believers spent some time behind bars. We don't know how long, but they were behind bars for some time. In uh, Acts chapter five or 17, verses 5 to 9, Luke tells us about the, th- uh, the sudden end of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. The persecution there was intense. They didn't just stop with Jason and the people that he was associated with. They started persecuting Christians, and they wanted to get to the root of it, so they went after Paul and Silas hardcore. So due to the fact that Paul wasn't really able to ground them in their theology, ground them in what they should be believing, what they should be doing, you know, he, he would typically spend as much time as he could, you know, a couple of years up to, a couple of years, getting a church grounded in their theology, but he didn't have that chance with the church at Thessalonica. So what he did is he sent Timothy, and Timothy was somebody that he was mentoring, kind of an understudy. He sent Timothy to minister to the the Thessalonian Christians. See, the the Jews and the the people who were upset with the Christians there, they knew who Paul was, but they didn't know who Timothy was, so he could kind of slide in without uh, without being persecuted. And apparently at some point, Paul and Timothy meet up, And Timothy gives Paul kind of a progress report at this church in Thessalonica. And that brings us to the occasion for Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. The first chapter is going to tell us that this is a church that gets it. They understood who Jesus was, and they understood what their response was supposed to be when they understand intellectually who Jesus is, what their response in their lifestyle is supposed to be. They're a church that gets us, that gets it. And Paul's going to tell us that this is a church that should be imitated. So Paul starts off his letter. He writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. So here, this is pretty typical for Paul. He just starts off by introducing himself. And while Silvanus and, and Timothy 
uh, weren't necessarily co-authors. They were nevertheless instrumental in planting the church and establishing the church and grounding the church in Thessalonica, especially Timothy. They would have known who, who, uh, who Timothy was. Um, not sure about Sylvanus. But so these people were standing together. We'll see that throughout the book of Thessalonians, uh, Paul commonly says we. And when he says that, when he's saying we, uh, he's referring to these three guys. And they're showing that they stand together in what they are writing to the church in Thessalonica. Now, it was common for Paul to greet the churches that he wrote to with the words grace and peace. See, grace for Paul was, was huge. That's, that's what it was all about for Paul. He knew how important it was because his own life had been transformed by it. And he knew that it was impossible for the follower of Christ to grow in Christ-likeness without grace. And that's why he was actually so upset with the church in Galatia. They were promoting legalism, which is the opposite of grace. So grace was huge for Paul. And he knew that God's plan was more than just saving us by grace. Yes, God wants to save us by grace, but he also wants, to, wants us to live by grace. Paul experienced God's initial grace on his uh, trip to Damascus, on the road to Damascus. But he also knew that we need it Every single day, every single moment. Now, he wrote to the Corinthians and, and reflected this. He said, A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, that is, God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, in Paul's weakness. So he continues, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Yes. Uh, chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Now, we're not exactly sure what this thorn in the flesh was for Paul, and a lot of commentators are going to have some different ideas. Some would say that he had an eye problem, uh, and some would say you know, maybe he had a problem from one of the beatings that he took for being a Christian. I personally have my own theory. I, I think it was baldness. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we. <laughs> the point is, there was something that was physically debilitating for him, and I guess baldness doesn't fit the bill for that. But... There was something that was physically debilitating for Paul that would have prevented him from doing what God was calling him to do if it wasn't for God's grace. And God's grace is what makes up the difference between those two things. So grace for Paul is huge because he knew that we're at our strongest when we're at our weakest. And it's in those conditions and under those types of circumstances that we are most likely, when it's easiest, to surrender everything that we have and everything that we're about to the Lord. He knew that. That's grace. And he says grace and peace. See, if you have that grace, then you have peace. If you don't have grace, you might think you have peace. The world promotes peace, but without God's grace, there is no peace. So there's a close connection between grace and peace. So Paul continues, writing in verses 2 and 3, We give thanks 
to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here is exactly what Paul is so excited about, what he's so elated about it. And this is where we know that he's telling them, you guys get it. You're a church that gets it. He says that he and his companions are constantly thankful for the church at Thessalonica, mentioning them in their prayers. Why? Because they're a healthy church. Because they get it. So what does a healthy church look like? Well, let's, let's start out by saying what Paul didn't say. He didn't say, congratulations, your numbers are up, you guys are growing exponentially, you guys must be doing something good over there. He doesn't say anything about numbers. He could have said, congratulations, you know, you guys have a pastor who has rock star status. No, he doesn't say anything about their leadership, as a matter of fact. We don't know who was necessarily doing what, but as a body, they were doing something good. He could have said, you guys have the best worship band around. Your music is like second to none. Somebody's got to sign you guys. He doesn't say that. And these are all things that the world today might say, well, those are indications of a healthy church. Paul doesn't say anything about those things ever. No, none of those things is ever given as an indication of a healthy church. So what are some indications of a healthy church? Well, he tells us here in verse 3, first of all, that he's excited about their work of faith. Uh, the NIV the, well, on the back of your bulletin says your work produced by faith. So what's that? What, what does that mean? Well, maybe that would remind us of something that James wrote. James wrote in chapter 2, verse 17, So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That sounds like works are necessary to be saved, right? So is that what it's saying? That we have to work if we want to be saved? No, absolutely not. And Paul clarified that several times in his writings. Uh, For example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, he says, One is justified by faith apart from works. The Galatians were being told that they had to work for their salvation. They were very legalistic. And so Paul corrected their thinking, writing, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Nobody is good enough to go to heaven. Nobody. That's what he's telling them. So legalism, working for your salvation, it doesn't work. So what's the relationship between faith and works? We're not saved by works. We're saved for good works. We're not saved by them. We're saved for them. That's why God saves us. That's why we receive God's grace, so that we can do good works. And he clarified that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where he wrote, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you, me, all of us, anyone who's put their trust for salvation in Jesus is his workmanship. But we should also notice that he says we are his workmanship. Not you, not me. We. So individually and collectively, as a body, we are his workmanship. 
Now let's also not miss the fact that Paul doesn't give us a, a huge list of things they were doing. He doesn't tell us that they were doing this outreach or that outreach or that they were having this event or that event. In fact, we don't know a whole lot about what they were doing specifically. But one work that Paul does tell us that they did, here in verse 9, he tells us, they tell us how you turned to God from idols. That is a work of faith. One commentator writes, it would be difficult to exaggerate how radical is the change of allegiance which is implied by the turn from idols to the living God. For idols are dead. God is living. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are many. God is one. Idols are visible and tangible. God is invisible and intangible, beyond the reach of sight and touch. Idols are creatures, the work of human hands. God is the creator of the universe and of all mankind, end quote. So before we go any further, let's talk about this. What, what, are, what are idols, first of all? Because when we think about idols, we think about you know maybe a, a little piece of wood that we've carved a face into or carved some kind of uh, design into, and then you know they, they bow down and worship it. But that's not all that it is. It, sure, it can be that. But the definition is actually a lot broader than that because the Jews were people that he was writing to. But the Jews didn't bow down before idols. They didn't have uh, a figure, uh, you know, a, a tangible figure that they bowed down in front of and worshipped. The Gentiles may have. The Jews most likely didn't. The Jews worshipped the law. And so an idol isn't necessarily something tangible. It's not necessarily something that you can pick up. An idol is anything that separates us from God. It's anything that we put before God. Anything that is a higher priority for us than God is our idol. It can be money. That's a big one. It can be our car. It can be our job. It can be our family. Anything that is of more importance to us than God would be considered an idol. Now, the Bible speaks very clearly to the fact that if there's been a legitimate change inside of us, there will also be a change outside of us. If our hearts have been changed, our actions will be changed. It'll affect the way we act, the way we speak, the places we go, the things we spend our money on, the things that we value. All those things will change. And if they haven't, that maybe we need to stop and wonder if there's really been a change inside of us. Because if there's not a change on the outside, we can't really be sure that there's been a change on the inside. If it hasn't changed our lives, how do we know? If you haven't been born again, if you're not a new creation with a new nature, and you're still a slave to the old nature, how do you tell the difference? The Bible teaches us that on our own, apart from God, any works that we do that we might think are good, the best we have to offer apart from God, he sees them as filthy rags. Now we also might want to state the obvious here, that you can't have a work of faith without faith. What's faith? Faith isn't necessarily believing in something that you can't see. Faith is just belief for whatever reason. 
Whatever you believe in, whatever you trust in, that's what you're putting your faith in. So a healthy church, a good church, is filled with people who have legitimately put their trust for salvation in Jesus. And not only have they done that, but they're doing something about it. It's not only an internal thing, it's something that's showing in their lives. So one thing that we have to do, if we're going to be a healthy church, is to follow the example set by the Christ followers in Thessalonica and turn from our idols. What does that mean? It's going to mean different things to everybody. Each person has their own idols that you need to turn from, that I need to turn from. Anything that is more important to me than God, I need to get away from it and reprioritize. So what will your work of faith be? It's going to be different for each person, but I'll just give you some pointers. First of all, seek first the kingdom of God, because if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, those idols aren't going to seem important to you. Those things that are more important to you than God are going to be less important than God if you seek first the kingdom of God. Secondly, live with an eternal perspective. If you're living for here and now, it's easy to get caught up in it. But if you're living with an eternal perspective, realizing that the choices we make might have eternal ramifications, it's going to change the way that we act. You might want to pass up telling somebody about Jesus. What if they go and die and they never hear it? What if? That's an eternal perspective. You're thinking if they make the decision to accept him, that's got eternal ramifications. If they make the choice to reject it, same thing, eternal ramifications. Third, ask yourself, if you really believe that Jesus wants you to be his hands and feet, if you really believe that God wants you to be salt and light in this world, would you do something differently? If you really believe that, 